Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And we continue the story of Yaakov towards the beginning of Parshat Vayetze. We are in Bereshit Perak Kavtet and we're up to Pasuk Zayin. And what we've had so far is Yaakov arrives in Haran immediately after having the dream of the ladder, etc. And he meets some shepherds. And we saw last week, um, uh, Rashi explained how the Chumash explains the arrangements that the shepherds had. Three groups of shepherds would gather together to roll the stone off the well. And Rashi had a lot of work last week on grammar and explaining the tenses of various words, which look the same in Hebrew, whether they're present or future. Um, and he used the Targum to help us understand exactly what the tense was, and we'll have one little echo of that today. But when Yaakov sees these shepherds gathered, and apparently he doesn't know about the uh, collective rolling off of the stone off the well, he says in Pasuk Zion, Vayomer, he said, Hain od hayom gadol, behold, yet the day is great. In other words, there's still lots of day to go. It's not the end of the day. Lo eight he asif hamikner, it's not the time to gather the flocks. Hashku hadson ulachu ra'u, water the flocks and go and shepherd. So he is telling them what to do. In a minute, we'll talk about why he has the audacity to tell them what to do. But let's see Rashi. Rashi says, Hain od hayongadol, behold, the day is still great. Because he, Yaakov, saw them, that's the flocks, crouching, like sitting there doing nothing. He thought that they were gathering the cattle in order to take them home. And they wouldn't do any more shepherding. He said to them, Behold, the day is still great. As if to say, and here is the clever bit of Rashi. Im sechirim atem, if you are hired laborers, hired by the day, lo shilamtem pulat hayom, you haven't done a full day's work. The im habehemat shalachem, and if the cattle, sorry, the animals belong to you, afal pikein, even so, lo eight ha'asef hamikneh, it's not time to gather the flocks. So Rashi says, that Yaakov said, there's a sort of dual part of the answer. Um, the answer can be split into two sections. Either you are hired workers and they're not your own flocks, or they are your own flocks. If you're hired workers, then you should think carefully about have you fulfilled your contract, i.e. to work for the full day, because it's not yet the end of the day. The day is still great. In other words, it's the middle of the day, or it's early afternoon or something. And then he says, if it's your own cattle, so it's not a question of you failing to do a day's work, but nevertheless, lo eight it's not the time to gather the cattle. Why, what is motivating Rashi? So it's, it's a, I think, a very nice example, and I think it's fairly straightforward, but the Pasuk has an apparent redundancy. The Pasuk says two things which amount to the same thing. Yaakov says, number one, heid od ayom gadol, and number two, lo eight hayasef hamikneh. Those are two separate things 
but with exactly the same point. It's not yet the end of the day. It's not time to gather the cattle. Now, you only gather the cattle to take them home at the end of the day. So to say it's not the end of the day is also to say it's not time to gather the cattle. So why does Yaakov use both expressions? I comes rushing and says Yaakov uses two separate expressions because he's talking to two potential audiences. He's talking to the same people, but he doesn't know whether they are hired or whether they are the owners of the cattle. If they are hired, he says, Hein od hayom gadol. If they are not hired, he says, Lo eit ha'esev ha'mikneh. So Rashi tells the backstory to explain why Yaakov says the same thing in two different ways. Now, I, I really do need to, I think, look at some other Mavoshim just very quickly on the subject of, what a chutzpah. Um, why doesn't Yaakov mind his own business? Why is Yaakov saying to the shepherds that uh, this is how you should be shepherding and I'm not happy with the way you're shepherding? And today, maybe this is a, a facet of our way of looking at things, we would definitely say mind your own business. It's not how the Avot looked at things. Says the Sephorno on these words, Hain od hayom gadol, had sadik yimas et ha'ovel. It's sadik is disgusted by things which are not right, by some sort of fraud. It's a, perhaps a too strong a word in English, um, which makes the point even stronger. Anything which is a little bit dodgy, a tzaddik takes exception to. The abomination of tzaddikim is a person who is fraudulent. So I think Sephardo is answering our question. Our question is, what's Yaakov doing interfering in other people's business? And the answer is, if he's a tzaddik and he sees something which he thinks, as it happens mistakenly, is fraudulent, even to a small degree, he will make a point about it. The Or HaChayim says that Yaakov is motivated by the issue of Tzar Balechayim, that it's not comfortable for the sheep to be herded up before the appropriate time. It's nice for them to run around, rummage around in the, in the meadow. That's what sheep do. So it's an issue of Tzar Balechayim, which obviously is a, is a mitzvah, is an important halachic consideration, and that's what's driving Yaakov. I must just add something which I don't think is pshat, but it's so clever that one is in admiration of the, uh, the wisdom that came up with it. The Nezer HaKodesh, I'm not quite sure who he is, but the Nezer HaKodesh says, Yaakov was at pains to tell the shepherds that it was not yet the end of the day. Why? Because 24 hours previously, the sun had set early. That's what's clever. When, why did the sun set early? Because we learned in Rashi that when Yaakov arrived at Hahamaria, the sun set early, forcing Yaakov to stop there, forcing Yaakov to go to sleep and have his dream. And then there was a the whole issue of was he doubling Mincha, was he doubling Marev? You might recall we talked about that. But the key point is Rashi says the sun set early. So says the Nezah HaKodesh, says Yaakov to the shepherds, yesterday was a, indeed a short day. But don't think it's going to happen again today. Today the sun will set at a normal time. And that's why Yaakov has to tell them, Hein od hayom gadol. There's plenty more day left. It's not going to be like yesterday. I think that's, um, to say cute, I think is perhaps a, a little bit lacking in respect. Um, clever, if not shut. And so the shepherds replied in Pasuket, Vayomru lo nuchal ad asher ye'afsu we are not able until all the flocks are gathered 
v'galalu et ha'even, and um, we will, they will roll the stone, me'al pi ha'be'er, from off the face of the well, v'hishkinu hatzon, and then they, we will give drink to the flock. So not, it's not like you were thinking, Yaakov, it's not like you were thinking we are bludging, we are as, uh, taking the afternoon off, but rather we're waiting here for a purpose. We're waiting here because we have to wait here till all the flocks are gathered and then we can roll off the stone. Says Rashi, lo nuchal, we are not able, lahashkot, to give drink to the flocks, lefi shahaeven gadola, because the stone is heavy. So Rashi actually spells out what hasn't been explicitly spelled out. Rashi made the same point in Gimel. Gimel said, um, sorry, Bet said, Va'even gadola al be'er. There was a big um, stone on top of the well. And in Gimel, it says, the shepherds gathered there, Va'galalueta even mal be'er. And they would roll the stone. Rashi in Gimel said, Raginam hayule safe they were used to gathering at that particular way. Lafisha haita ha'even gadola because their stone was big. And if you look carefully, the Chumash itself did not explicitly say that the stone was so big it needed three lots of shepherds to push it off. Rashi has said that. Now it's sort of obvious, and, and Rashi is giving Peshat because he's saying that's why the Torah tells you that the stone was heavy, sorry, the stone was big, so that you can then work out that the shepherds alone, uh, each on their own, couldn't remove it. But the Torah doesn't say that. So here again, in Pasuk Chet, Rashi is spelling out that lo nuchal, when it says we are not able, it's because lefisha ha'even gedola, because the stone was big, and it took lots of shepherds to roll it off. What might you have thought about lo nuchal? You might have thought lo nuchal means we're not allowed, that we have an agreement amongst ourselves, that we will all water our flocks together. But... You might have thought, if you follow that train of thought, that the stone may be big, may be small. The fact is there's an agreement that they'll roll it off together. But it's Rashi who points out that the reason they say lo nuchal is not because we're not allowed, but because we're physically not able because the stone is so big. Why is this important? Because we know in Tupasukim's time, Yaakov is going to roll the stone off all by himself. So Rashi, in order to explain why that is special and why that is significant, Rashi says here, and he also said in Pasuk Gimel, that it's the weight of the stone, he doesn't use the word weight, the size of the stone, which makes it impossible for one person or even a group of shepherds to roll it off until you have all three groups of shepherds together. And that is going to make Yaakov's ability to roll off the stone all by himself really special. It's also the case that the shepherds have answered Yaakov's question, which Rashi said was really two questions, or two alternate questions, in Pasuk Zion. Rashi said, why are you gathering early? If you're day workers, you haven't filled your day. If it's your sheep, it's not a good time to uh, conclude the uh, shepherding. And now they've answered it by saying, we have no choice. We are stuck here because we're waiting for the shepherds to gather in order to roll off the stone. That's Pasuk Chet. Uh, the last words of Rashi is Vagolanu, Ze Maturgam Vigandrun, sorry, Vigandrun. 
And the Gandharud, well, let's before we say the next words, so you can see it for yourselves, but that matches Rashi on Pasuk Gimel. Now there it had the word Vagalalu, same word, exactly the same word in Hebrew, but Rashi says that's translated in the Targum, this is in Pasuk Gimel, as Umagandarin, because it's ongoing, it's present tense, as it was, this is the normal thing that they did day after day. They would roll the stone. But now when the shepherds are saying to Yaakov, we have to wait till all the flocks are gathered, the Galilu, and then they will roll the stone, says Rashi, same Hebrew word, different Aramaic translation. Now in our Pasuket, it's a different translation. It's Vigandarun, which is different from what he said before. Continues Rashi, Lafi Shahu Lashan Atid, because it is future. So Rashi is doing at least three things, I suppose. Um, number one, he's telling you what's going on. The shepherds are saying, they're using the future tense to say, we will roll the stone. Number two, Rashi is explaining why the same Hebrew word has two different Aramaic translations. But really, I would say that Rashi, Rashi thinks his readers can work out what the shepherds are saying. But Rashi is pointing out, it's really what I, I regularly call a classic Rashi, two similar but different things. And in this case, the two words are not just similar, they're identical, but they have different meanings. So Rashi being Rashi has to point out why they have, or what, what is the different meanings that Vigololu and Vigololu has. And now we come on to Pasuk Tet. Odena medaber imam, while he was speaking with them, Rachel ba'a, ba'a, sorry, imhatzon, Rachel had come with the flock, Ashela aviha, um, which was her father's, Kira'ahi, because she was a shepherd. You might say shepherdess, but I don't think we say that anymore. Now, just by the way, there's no Rashi on that, but in a sense, Rashi has covered it with what he said on Pasuk Vav, because he explained that Ba'a, with the emphasis on the second syllable, in the case of a two-letter root in the past feminine, um, can either mean um, was coming or had come. And if the accent is on the second syllable, as it was in Pasuk Vav, it means was coming, imperfect, whereas if it's on the first syllable, as it is here, Ba'a means she's already come. So Rachel has now arrived. Now Rachel is a very important person in our story. She is Rachel Imenu. She is the Akeris Abayas. As we know, Yaakov had two wives and two Pelagshim, concubines, not quite the right word really. Um, and, but, and Rachel only bore two of his many children, but nevertheless, Rachel was the one he always wanted. Um, if you can read this section, which Rashi certainly doesn't, as a love story, and the love between Rachel and Yaakov is very strong and very powerful, and it's really the driving force of the whole narrative, at least for the next couple of chapters. So Rachel has now arrived. And we have Pasuk, uh, that was Pasuk Tet, there was no Rashi on that. Now we have Pasuk Yud. Vayehi, and it was, Ka'asher ra'a Yaakov et Rachel bat Lavan achi imo. When Yaakov saw Rachel, the daughter of Lavan, the brother of his mother, and the flock of Lavan, the brother of his mother, Yaakov drew near, and he rolled, although we'll look at that word in more detail, the stone 
from off the mouth of the well, Vayashk etzon Lavan achi imo, and he watered the flock of Lavan, the brother of his mother. Just by the way, this is not Rashi, and uh, in this year we don't usually do much close reading, but there's uh, a little bit of close reading of that verse which, which jumps out at you. What phrase is repeated three times in that verse? Come on, let's do some work. Achi imo. Achi imo. Lavan achi imo. He sees Rachel, the daughter of Lavan, the brother of his mother. He sees the flock of Lavan, the brother of his mother. And then he waters the flock of Lavan, the brother of his mother. Why is he overcome with emotion? What's it all connecting to? His mother. He's in exile. He's away from home. But these things connect him to his mother. And that's why his mother, which is the ultimate, you know, the end of the line in the, each of the three occurrences, is mentioned um, as if to say, I, I think this is a, this isn't Rashi, but I think this is a pretty legitimate reading, as if to say, Yaakov is now emotionally aroused by the connection to his mother. So, and what does he do? He's able to roll the stone off the well, which couldn't be done by a shepherd on their own. Only when there were three groups of shepherds could they roll the stone, but Yaakov can do it all by himself. And then Rashi says, Vayigash Yaakov, um, like removing the stopper from the bottle, from the face, from the mouth of a bottle. In other words, it's pretty easy. I say pretty easy. Some stoppers are pretty uh, are not easy. They don't like draw out like very very easily, like very smoothly. But it's not hard work. It's not hard work. It's it's relatively easy to take the stopper out the bottle. Uh, and I'll just finish off the Rashi and we'll go back and try and understand it. To tell you that his strength was very great. So Rashi says, first of all, that he removed the stone easily. And secondly, the whole purpose of the narrative is to tell you that he was very strong. Now, how do we know that he removed the stone easily? Well, obviously he did it by himself. That, that's clear. But Rashi is looking at some other things as well. It's interesting that in his Dibra Matril he says, Vayigash, Yaakov, Vayagel. Um, and I actually saw in a different edition the, the Dibra Matril missed out the word Yaakov and it just said Vayigash, Vayagel. As if to say it's the juxtaposition of those two verbs which come right next to each other. Yaakov is just the subject of a Yigash, uh, and it's the subject of a Yagel. So the, the Yaakov appearing there doesn't really separate the two verbs. Those two verbs are right next to each other. Um, so as soon as he draws near, he removes the stone. It's that quick. It's that instant. It's that easy. Um, others want to say it's interesting that they use the word Vayagel. Now, um, when the shepherds rolled the stone, it was the root Gimel Lamad Lamad. Um, and the other word for rolling is Gimel Lamad, Gimel Lamad. Um, what does Gimel Lamad mean? Now, what I'm about to say, I think, is an alternate meaning. Gimel Lamad also means to, to roll. Um, they all come from the same root. Gimel Lamad, Lamad, Gimel Lamad, Gimel Lamad, and Gimel Lamad, three of them, they all come from the same root. However, the word Vayagel also is related to he revealed, as in Galui, as in Galui Vyodua, Lepnei so he revealed the um, stone. So the actual use, sorry, the use of this particular form as opposed to Gimel Lamad Lamad or 
Gimel Lamed, Gimel Lamed, gives us another hint, another uh, implication, an allusion to the word he revealed. So uh, rather than rolled, which is hard work, revealing is very simple. You just like take off the cover or you take the stopper out the bottle. That's not a big deal. So maybe um, that's why Rashi makes the point to say that he didn't just remove the stone, he removed the stone very easily. Now, then Rashi says, And this is, this is important, because Rashi is saying the whole point of the story is to tell you that Yaakov is very strong. Just by the way, I'll mention at this point, you might have thought otherwise. Yaakov Avinu, Ishtam, Yoshev Ohalim, he sits in tents. He's a mummy's boy. His brother is all big and hunky and goes out hunting in the field. What does Yaakov do? He just sits and learns. He's like a yeshiva bacha looking sort of weak and puny. Aye, maybe a yeshiva bacha has got hidden strength. Maybe Yaakov, the Ishtam, has got the power to roll away stones. Now, uh, now we can see that Yaakov is actually very uh, able in body as well as in soul. And that perhaps sets us up for Yaakov's hard work and effort and success in physical labor that he's about to undertake for the next 20 years. Why does Rashi think the focus is on Yaakov and his strength? Well, perhaps because the word Yaakov is said twice in this passage. If you look carefully, going back to the beginning, Yaakov et Rachel bat imo, et son imo, the second Yaakov there really could have been managed without. If the pasuk had said Yigash Yagel, we would know exactly who is the subject of Yigash. The last subject mentioned was Yaakov, and as we've seen before, when there's been some ambiguity about who is the who is the pronoun referring to, here there wouldn't be, because the last subject was clearly Yaakov, as in Vayihika Asher Ra'a Yaakov et Rachel dot dot dot. So we wouldn't need it repeated after Vayigash, and where we have Yaakov again. So maybe that's why Rashi says that the whole pasuk, the whole story, this this whole episode is to focus on Yaakov and his abilities. In this case, his great strength. And then we come to Pasuk Yud Aleph. Vayishak Yaakov la Rachel, Yaakov kissed Rachel, Vayisa et kolo vayevk. And he lifted up his voice and wept. Now, we're not going to talk about the rights and wrongs of kissing Rachel. Um, it, to our um, ears, um, especially to a generation which is always very interested, perhaps at a certain stage of their lives, in who's Shomri Nagir. Um, the idea of Yaakov kissing Rachel does sort of jar a little bit. Rashi doesn't deal with it. Rav Hirsch does, for instance. Um, maybe you can say that Yerachel was very young. Maybe you can say that it wasn't derechiba, it wasn't a way of affection. Rav Hirsch says the difference between the um, Yishak Yaakov Rachel and the Yishak Yaakov Rachel. That Lamad makes it a bit more indirect. So, Ayin Sham, go and look in other sources for that question. Rashi has a different question. But before I say that, I must just say that what might be a pun, um, in the previous Pasuk, the end of the Pasuk, Vayashk et son Lavan, he watered the flock of Lavan, and now we have the same root, not quite the same word, Vayishak Yaakov le Rachel. That doesn't mean he watered Rachel, it means he kissed Rachel. But um, I think when the Torah uses the same root in a very similar fashion to mean two different things within a few words of each other, it's just something we should notice. But it's not Rashi. Rashi is interested in the last word here, 
Vayavk. He cried. Why did he cry? Says Rashi. Because he saw with the divine spirit, which is a little bit like prophecy, that she would not enter with him into burial, referring to the fact that he would be buried in Maratamachpela and she would not. She was buried in Keber Rachel on the way to Ephrat, which may or may not be where we call Keber Rachel today. Perhaps it's probably not actually. Um, but nevertheless, Keber Rachel is a place that connects us to Rachel, even if it's not actually her burial place. Um, but she's buried on the way to Ephrat, as we know from the time when she died in Pasha Yishvach, and the time when it's referred to again by Yaakov, to when he speaks to Yosef in Pasha Vayechi, which we'll come to in a moment. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Just remember, Rashi says, he cried because she's not going to be buried with him. Then Rashi says, Devar Acher. There's another answer. Because he came with empty hands. Omar, he said, Eliezer, Eved Avi Abba, Eliezer, who was the servant of my grandfather, Abraham, Hayubi Adav Nizamim Utsmidim. He came with bracelets and uh, necklaces and nice things. And I have nothing in my hands. So we know that Eliezer arrived with 10 camels laden with stuff. And he gave jewelry to Rivka and he gave presents to Rivka's family. Um, and so, by the way, nearly 100 years later, Laban must be pretty old by this time, nearly 100 years later, uh, the grandson of Abraham comes, following the same journey as Abraham's servant, with nothing. And that's why he cries. But Rashi still has to explain why he's got nothing. And that's a good question. Because you would have assumed that Yitzchak would have sent him with some nice presents for his host. So what happened? He said, Lefi Sharadaf Eliphas ben Esav. Because Eliphas, whom we're later on going to learn, is the son of Esav. But Rashi brings him in here. He pursued, Eliphaz, the son of Esau, pursued the mitzvot aviv with the, in the command of his father, Acharav, after him. In other words, Eliphaz was told by Esau to chase after Yaakov, Lahargo, to kill him, the Hasigo, and he reached, caught up with him. So he caught up with him, and he's about to kill Yaakov on the instructions of his father. Ulafisha gadol Eliphaz, v'cheikoshal Yitzchak, and because Eliphaz grew up in the bosom of Yitzchak, in other words, Eliphaz grew up with his grandfather, which is interesting. This is all Midrash, obviously. But it suggests that Esau's influence over Eliphaz, his own son, was tempered by Esau's father, Yitzchak's influence over Eliphaz. So because Eliphaz grew up embraced by Yitzchak, Meshach Yadav, he withdrew his hands. He did not kill Yaakov as um, Aesop had commanded. Omar lo, but Eliphaz said to Yaakov, Ma What can I do about the command of my father? How can I not kill you when my father's commanded you to do, me to do so? Omar lo Yaakov, Yaakov said, Tul ma shabiyadai, sorry, take what's in my hand, leave me with nothing, and somebody who is poor, who is poverty stricken, 
is considered halachically in a certain sense as somebody who is dead. So there's a lot in this, this story. And remember, this is a Devar There's two explanations. We'll explain why there's two in a moment. But this story basically says uh, that the point is he arrives with nothing. He arrives with no money. And that's why he cries, because Eliezer, two generations before, arrived with 10 camels and he arrives with nothing. And that's why he cries. Why did he have nothing? Because Eliphaz, his nephew, was about to kill him. And Eliphaz didn't want to kill him, but he still had to do something to satisfy Eliphaz's own father's mitzvah, i.e. to kill Yaakov. So Yaakov says, let's be very clever. I love this bit. Yaakov says to Eliphaz, let's do a halachic thing. So halachically, a poor person is mate as if they've died. So you, by taking all my money, it's as if you've killed me. So we have to assume that at least Yaakov and Eliphaz was happy to project the halachic image of reality onto reality itself. That's a Rav Soloveitchik idea of what he describes in the halachic man, how halacha forms a model of the actual world. And in the halachic model, somebody who's poor, like really poor, is as if they're dead. And that will say that on that level, Eliphaz has killed Yaakov, and therefore Eliphaz can say to his father that he's fulfilled the father's mitzvah. But the minor problem is, that's why Yaakov's now got no money, and that's why he cries when he meets Rachel. Um, just by the way, why is a poor person considered as if they're dead? Says the Maharal, and this is very much um, part of the Maharal's thought, because life means independence. To be, to be independent means to be alive, and to be dependent on others means not to be fully alive. Um, the Maharal would not have used the word Zionism because he was 400 years before the word, that was, the word was coined, but the Maharal has been very much adopted by the religious Zionist movement as one of its main inspirations. And you can see the Maharal talks about the independence of the Jewish people being their redemption. Um, uh, some of you might have learned, or you might have even learned from me, uh, the Maharals are an idea of what is matzah, why it's lechem only, but that's not for now. But what we see is the idea that a people which is independent is a people which is redeemed. So a person who is dependent on others is not really alive. Okay. Um, the, why, the first answer... The first answer is that Rachel is not going to share Yaakov's burial place. So we have to assume, and Rashi does this all the time, that the Sadiqim, that the Gedolim of the time of the, of the Chumash had the Ruach HaKodesh. That they, some of their actions can be explained on the basis of they knew what was going to happen. So we have to take that as a given because Rashi believes that that was the level they were on. So um, who's going to be buried with whom? Is, is a very important part of their future destiny, and Yaakov is aware, so he cries. Now, why is Rachel not going to be buried with Yaakov? So, complicatedly, Rashi, in other places, gives two different reasons. Rashi in uh, Perak Lamad Tet Vav describes the, whether it's an argument or a friendly argument between Rachel and Leah, about who's, uh, uh, what is the price that Rachel will have to pay for the Dudaim that, belong, that were found by Reuven. Reuven is Leah's oldest son. We're jumping ahead, obviously. Uh, Reuven is Leah's oldest son. Reuven goes out and finds some fruit, which we're not quite sure the translation of, so we'll leave it as Dudaim. Rachel says to Leah, oh, I'd like some of those. Leah says, you've taken my husband. You want, me to, take, you want to take my son's Dudaim as well? Rachel says, 
you can have Le Ra Yaakov for the night. And Leah goes out as Yaakov comes home and says, you're with me tonight. And as a result of that night, Yisoscha is born. And Rashi says there in Perak Lamad Pasuk Tetvav, Ulafi Shazilzala b'mishkav hadzadik, because Leah made light of sleeping with the tzadik, lo zachta lihikaver imo, she did not merit to be buried with him. Um, and according to Rashi there, Perak Lamad Pasuk Tetvav, that's why she wasn't buried with Yaakov. Now at this point, Let's go back to our Rashi and the two explanations. The first one, Yaakov cried because he wasn't going to be buried with Rachel. And two, Yaakov cried because Eliphaz had taken all his money. Says the muscular David, we need both answers because according to the first, there's a problem. And the problem is it hadn't yet happened that it was then decreed that she wasn't going to be buried with him. Now, this raises a question of, of predetermination versus foreknowledge. Just because Yaakov knew something was going to happen, does that mean it had to happen? I think that's what the Muscular David is saying, and that's a problem, because it hasn't yet happened that Leah will exercise her free will and treat uh, the tzaddik in this particular way lightly, as Rashi says, and therefore be punished by not being buried in Maratha Machpelah. So how can, uh, that, how can uh, Yaakov be crying about that now when the event that causes ya Rachel, sorry, yes, Rachel, not to be buried in, sorry, sorry, it, it wasn't, I've said a few things wrong. It wasn't Leah who was punished. It was Rachel who was punished. Rachel was the one who traded away her night with Yaakov for some fruit. And her punishment was not to be buried with Yaakov. Sorry, I said it was Leah who was punished. I wasn't thinking straight. Rachel was punished because Rachel um, treated lightly the, uh, the ability to be with the tzaddik for a night and gave it away to Leah. Leah was also punished for, or was uh, uh, chastised for coming out and saying to Yaakov, you with me tonight. That wasn't proper as well, but that's another story. So back to what I'm saying, back to what the muscular David is saying, because he's, as you know, the home address for explaining why Rashi gives two answers. The first answer is, in, is unsatisfactory because the event for which Rachel was punished has not yet happened. The second answer is unsatisfactory because According to the muscular David, if Yaakov was upset that he lost all his money, it wouldn't be Dafka now that he cries. He would have cried earlier when Eliphaz had taken all his money and when he realized he was going to arrive empty handed, but he hadn't yet arrived empty handed, he would have cried already. So it doesn't make sense that he cries now. Thus says the muscular David. But at this point, I also want to mention Rashi in Perak Memchet Pasuk Zion. Rashi and Perak Menchet Pasuk Zion says that when Yaakov is on his deathbed and he's asking Yosef to make sure that Yaakov is buried in Eretz Yisrael in Maratamachpela, I'm adding a little bit of the context here, which isn't explicit in the Rashi or the Chumash, but Yaakov needs to explain why, even though he, Yaakov, is asking to be buried in Maratamachpela, Yosef's own mother. Rachel was not able to be buried in Marat HaMachpelah. And Rashi there says in the, uh, in the words of Yaakov, um, on the words of Ekbar Sham, I buried her there, I buried Rachel on the way to Evrat, not in Marat HaMachpelah. He says, Avaldalacha shalpi hadibur kevarti hasham. You, Yosef, 
to whom Yaakov is speaking. You have to know that I did this because of Hashem's decree. That she will be of aid to her children when they are exiled by the Babylonian general Nebuzaradan. And the people going into exile, into the Babylonian exile, will pass by her grave. Yatsta Rachel al Kivra, Yerachel will come out of her grave, Ubocher, and she will cry, Umavakshim Alehem Rachamim, and she will uh, request mercy for those going into exile, Shenema Kol Barama Nishma. As we well know, the Pasignim Yahu, which is put to music, a voice is heard in Ramah, that is the voice of Rachel coming out of her grave to pray on behalf of those who are being exiled into Babylon. Says Yaakov, according to Rashi, that's why she was buried there and not in Maratamachpela. So we have two different reasons in Rashi as to why Rachel was not buried in Maratamachpela. Now you could, it's not too hard to say they're not contradictory. She didn't deserve to be buried in the Maratamachpela because she treated the Sadiq lightly when she gave away her night for the sake of the fruit of Reuben. And she was buried in a particular place which was not Maratamachpela because of the other reason. Or you can find other ways to reconcile the two comments of Rashi, which we'll leave until later on. But now let's go back. Instead of using the idea that she didn't get buried in Maratamachpela because of the incident with the Dudayim, but let's say she didn't get buried in Maratamachpela because Hashem wanted her to be buried in Kever Rachel so she could pray for the exiles as they went into exile. Now the whole picture of what Yaakov is crying about changes. We can now say that Yaakov cries, as Rashi says now explicitly, because Rachel is not going to be buried with him. But why is Rachel not going to be buried with him? Because the Jewish people are going into exile. And Rachel is going to be needed to daven for the people going into exile. So what he's really crying about is the exile itself. And this leads to at least two more points that I want to say. Number one, why should he cry about exile now? Because he is also in exile. His exile is a paradigm for the Jewish people's exile. So he's just arrived and it's going to be a long, hard time that he's going to have to suffer at the hands of Lavan. And that is compatible to the way the Jewish people are going to suffer at the hands of the Babylonians. So he's crying for them because he's experiencing it at the same time. We can also say something else. When do we cry for the Chorban? When do we cry for the exile of the Jewish people? At the times of our greatest joy. In particular, the most obvious example is at a wedding and we break a glass and it's now become very um, customary to sing Im Eshkachech Yerushalayim. I'm so old, it wasn't done when I was young. But now at every wedding, it's sung slowly with all the latest tunes. Because we remember the destruction of Yerushalayim at a time of a wedding. What's going on here? Yaakov is meeting Rachel. They're about to get married. Well, seven years later, but they're going to get married. And at the time of meeting Rachel, he's also crying of the, over the Chorban. That's the Jewish way. We always mix the greatest Simcha with remembering the Chorban and shedding a tear for it. And now we can see that that's exactly what Yaakov is doing. Okay, I think that we said enough on that verse. So we will move on to Pasuk Yud Bet. 
where it says, Vayaged Yaakov Rachel ki achi abiha hu. Yaakov said to Rachel that he was the brother of his of her father, the he ben Rivka who, and he was the son of Rivka, for Taratz the Taget la Abiha, and she ran, and she told her father. So he says ki achi Aviha who that he's the brother of her father. <coughs> is that true, folks? Is that true? <coughs> no, people are shaking their head. He's not. He's the son of the sister of her father. Lavan and Rivka were brother and sister. So how can he say he is the brother of Lavan? Says Rashi, Korov la'aviha. He is a relative, a close relative of her father. He's not brother, but he's um, son of the sibling. So instead he calls himself sibling, he's actually the son of the sibling. It's as if he skipped a generation. Says Rashi, when he says brother, he means close relative. Because that's what brother sometimes, rather that's what ach sometimes means. So there's no um, falsehood here. He's using the word ach to mean korov, close relative. Have we ever seen a word, the use of that before? Yes, we have. In this very shear. Because back when Abraham and Lot separated, Abraham said, uh, Rashi here says, Kamo, just like, anashim achim anachnu. We are men who are brothers. Was Lot the brother of Abraham? No, he was the nephew of Abraham. He was also the brother-in-law, just to complicate things. But he wasn't the brother. So when Abraham says we are achim, he means we are close relatives. That, says Rashi, is the explanation of the word achi. Then Rashi brings a midrash. And he says, umidrasho. The midrashic explanation, im l'rama'ut hu va, if he, that's Lavan, comes for trickery, gam ani achiv baramaut, then I'm going to be his brother in trickery. I'm going to be as tricky as him. Ve'im adam kasherhu, but if he is a person who is kosher, which today we often use to mean eats kosher food, but actually it means a fit person, a person of integrity, a person of honesty, gam ani ven rivka achoto hakashera. Then I'm going to be the daughter, sorry, the son of Rivka, his sister, who was a kashira, a very fit and person of integrity too. So says Rashi, according to the second explanation, the Midrash, I am his brother. Now, what do I mean by brother? Not brother as in sharing parentage, but brother as in brothers in arms, as Shakespeare would say. Brothers as in a, a no, he didn't say brothers in arms, he said a band of brothers. Um, as in a, a colleague, as in a similarly inclined person. Well, either similarly inclined for trickery, if he comes with a trick, or similarly inclined as a kosher, as a fit person of integrity. So Rashi gives two answers. Says the muscular David, the problem with the first answer is if Rashi, if, if the word achi aviha means korovla aviha, then Yaakov is repeating the same thing twice. Because Rak Yaakov says, Yaakov Rachel, ki achi avihahu, ven rivkahu. If if achi aviha means a close relative of his of her father, e.g. her father's nephew, then that's exactly the same. In fact, it's subsumed within the ben rivkahu. 
once he says that he is the son of Rivka, then obviously he is the close relative of Lavan. So if we say Achim means close relative, then the Pasuk is repeating itself, and there is no need for the Pasuk to repeat itself. Hence Rashi's second explanation. Interesting, the muscular David doesn't actually say what's wrong with the second explanation, but I think it's obvious. It's a Midrash. It's not the Peshat in the word Ach. So the first explanation gets the word Ach with a legitimate Peshat to mean Korov, mean relative, but it creates the problem of the repetition. The second explanation, even though the muscular David doesn't spell this out, but I'm going to, uses a non-Peshat interpretation of the word Ach. It means colleague or equal. It doesn't mean brother or even close relative. It's worth pointing out that the structure uh, that Rashi uses is very precise. Regarding the uh, uh, Yaakov says of Lavan, Im Laramaut hu ba, if he's coming for trickery, then Gamani Achir Baramaut, but I'm going to trick him. And the halacha is, um, well, the Midrash says, so I can't say exactly halachic, but the Midrash says it's permitted for a person to use a trick against another trick. But once the trick has been done by the bad person, it's not right for the, the good person to then use a trick in revenge. In other words, a trick in self-defense, but not a trick in revenge. So, and you can see this in Rashi. He doesn't say, if Lavan tricks me, then I can trick him back. Or if Lavan is a tricker, trickster, I can be a trickster. But Dafke, if Lavan comes, who Lerama Ut, who Ba, if he comes for the sake of trickery, in other words, he comes planning to do a trick, then, and only then, I, Yaakov, can do a trick back. And indeed, we'll see, that's, that's what happened to some extent. And then Rashi says, on the words for Tagela Aviha, Lafi Sha'ima Meita, because, sorry, so uh, Rivka's got, sorry, Rachel's got this exciting news that her cousin has appeared from nowhere. Um, her father's sister's son, and she runs to tell her father. She runs to tell her father. Why is it significant? What, what is the significance of running to tell her father? Says Rashi, Lefisha ima meita, because her mother had died. And she had nobody to tell but him. So Rashi feels there's a need to explain why she ran to tell her father, because you would have thought otherwise you would have thought she would run to tell her mother why would you have thought that well you might say because it's sort of girl talk and if there's an exciting new arrival in town who might end up being your husband it's natural for a girl to turn and tell her mother rather than her father but i don't think that's what's driving rashi what's driving rashi is rashi's brilliance at as we've said many times seeing the entire torah as a shulchan arach as a lane table and rashi knows that if it's something's a little bit different in this place setting because he can compare it to that place setting that's how that's, that's what we see in a, in a lane table if there's a fork missing here we know it's missing because that place setting has got a fork and this one hasn't got a fork so rashi knows that there's somewhere else in the torah where a very similar thing happens and somebody runs to tell her mother and if you look in perak kaf dalad pasuk kaf chet the similar incident is when Eliezer meets Rivka and says, Oh, have I got a boy for you? Rivka, as it was, ran to and told the house of her mother. 
And Rashi there says, A girl does not tell except to her mother. So says Rashi, that incident with Rivka has set the paradigm that we now know that when a girl meets um, something like this, and after all, meeting Yaakov is very compatible to meeting Eliezer, uh, because it's going to lead to marriage, she runs to tell her mother. And in this case, she didn't. So Rashi has to explain why she didn't. By the way, you might ask, why doesn't Rashi say this one's the default and that one's the exception? I don't know. I don't know. I suspect there you have to add the fact that it is more natural for a girl to tell her mother than tell her father. So here Rashi says that he is, uh, that her mother is dead and that is why she's telling her father. Now, Pasuk Yud Gimel. So now Lavan comes again onto the stage. Lavan we met relatively briefly as the brother of Rivka. Rashi had pretty negative things to say about him then. And now Rashi Lavan is going to be center stage for this part of Yaakov's life. <coughs> and Rashi's going to have a lot of things to say about him on this case. Vayehi, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Vayehi Kishmoa Lavan et Shema Yaakov. When it was, when Lavan heard the news of Yaakov, Ben Achoto, the son of his sister, Vayorat Likrato, and he ran to meet him, Vyachabek Lo, and he embraced literally to him, Vyanashek Lo, and he kissed him, Vyavyehu Elbeto, and he brought him into his house, Vyasaper Lavan, and he told to Lavan, so now the subject is Yaakov doesn't make sense for the subject to still be uh, Lavan. Lavan. He told to Lavan, et kol ha'eila, all these things. Um, and at this point, I, I do... Um, no, okay. We're, we're going to have to understand this in relation to the next verse, but we might be able to just uh, touch on it briefly. So Rashi says on the words, well, Rashi goes through all these verbs. Vayaratz, vayachabek, vayanashek, vayanashek, and Rashi's got something to say on each of them, that they form a particular pattern. And Rashi says on the first, Vayaratzli Krato, Kasavur Mamon Huta'on. Ya'alavan rushed to meet him because he thought that he was bearing money. Shaharei Eved Habayit Balakan Ba'asara Gamalim Tu'unim. Because, behold, the servant of the house, i.e. Eliezer, two generations before, had come here with ten laden camels. So, uh, the why? What's the significance of the servant? So, uh, it seems that Rashi is saying the Lavan's doing a kavachoma from a minor case to a minor, major case. If the servant brought ten laden camels, then how much more so will the descendant of the household himself, i.e., Yaakov? So that is why Lavan thinks that Yaakov's got money. Um, why does Rashi say this? Because Rashi knows that Lavan is a Russia. That is the um, default position that, that, that Rashi is basing basically everything else he says about Lavan on. So every one of his actions has got to fit into the paradigm of Ra Lavan being a Russia. That being the case, then Rashi has a question. Why does Lavan run to greet him? That is the act of a great Machnis Orchim of a great bastion of hospitality, like Avraham, and like Lot in a slightly more mediocre fashion. 
But Avraham is the one who runs to meet guests because he wants to bring them into his tent. Lavan is not a great host. He doesn't want to give away things, as we can see from the Pesukim and as Rashi highlights. So why would he be running to greet him? So says Rashi, he's running because he's Lavan. And Lavan wants money, and that's why he's running. And he thinks that Eliezer must be carrying money. And Rashi continues in the same vein. Vechabek, he embraced him. When he saw with him nothing, in other words, there were no laden camels, Amar Shema Zahuvim Hevi, Vehinam He thought maybe pieces of gold he's brought with him, and behold, they are in his breast. They're hidden in his chest. Um, Zahuvim are bits of great wealth that are small, that take up a little bit of room that you can keep on your person. So he embraces him to find out where's the money. Um, the, perhaps what Rashi is saying is, if he just wants money, uh, without this, Rashi of com- this comment of Rashi, you would wonder why he's being so friendly. Why is he showing such great affection? Why is he giving him a hug? So Rashi says, Lavan is not a huggy type. Lavan is not going to give a hug to his long-lost cousin. Sorry, long-lost nephew. Um, so he must have a deeper reason for wanting to embrace him, and it must be connected with Lavan's core personality, which is the avarice and this desire for money. So how can hugging him be for the sake of the money? So Rashi says that Lavan suspected he had money hidden on his person. And then Rashi says on the word Lo, he kissed him, Maybe he's brought precious jewels and they are in his money, sorry, in his mouth. Apparently, it was the way of the safest place to put one's movable wealth was in one's mouth. I'm not quite sure how that worked and how you ate and drank at the same time. But anyway, that's what Lavan suspects. So again, same question. Why is Lavan being so friendly and so affectionate when Lavan all he cares about is money? So Rashi explains that even this sign of affection is really a sign of searching for money. Um, um, I'll just mention that the Marshal, uh, in his commentary on the Gemara and his explanation of the story, doesn't disagree with Rashi, but reads the, the source somewhat differently. And he says, doesn't mean literally in his mouth. It's a metaphor. He kissed him to generate affection so that uh, Yaakov would be all friendly and then Yaakov would, through his words, reveal where the money is. So the piv is not mouth literally, but his, his expression, his verbal expressions. So he kisses him in order that Yaakov would then tell him where the money is. Okay, um, let's just fin- we've just got time to finish this verse. Via saper la lavan, he told lavan, shaloba elamitoch ones achiv, he only came because he was pressured into coming by his own brother, by Esav. And that his money had been taken from him. Now, a couple of things to say in the minutes we've got left is number one, obviously, this ties in with Rashi's comment on Pasuk Yud Aleph about Eliphaz taking the money. And in fact, it might even be the case that Rashi deliberately put the story of Eliphaz there in Pasuk Yud Aleph in order to explain what's going on here. Um, and secondly, um, 
this Rashi, this comment on Be'asapel Olavan, ties in with the whole context and the way Rashi is explaining the Pasuk. Rashi has said in three previous lines, one after another, that Lavan's looking for the money and Lavan doesn't find any. Lavan expected there to be a lot of money and there isn't. So it makes sense for Rashi to explain the last part of the Pasuk also in the same vein, relating to the other parts, that he told him, what, what did ya, la Yaakov tell him? What was kol hadavarim ha'ela? All these things. It must be some information related to the fact that he hasn't got any money, which Lavan has been searching for. You can also say that if you didn't go with Rashi, you might assume that Yaakov told Lavan the same that Yaakov had told Rachel, namely that Yaakov is Rachel's uh, cousin and Lavan's nephew. You might have thought that that's, he said the same thing to uh, Lavan. But in which case, it wouldn't be kol hadavrim ha'ele, it would be kol hadavrim ha'em. It would be all those things. He told these things to Rachel, and then he told those things, i.e. the same things, to Lavan. But it doesn't say hadavrim ha'em, it says hadavrim ha'ele, implying they were different things, a new set of things. So what new information could he be telling Lavan? answer information that explains what's been going on in the previous three lines, explains why he hasn't got any money that Lavan is looking for, and that's what Yaakov explains to Lavan. And there we will stop, and next week, Imiyat Hashem, we will see Lavan's reaction and the trickiness of Lavan, who was, as we know, very tricky, and we will continue learning that next week. So I wish everyone a Kativa v'chatima tova. May it truly be a good year. May it be in almost every way we can think of, a better year than the one we've had. Thank you, Amen. and I'll see you next week, which will Amen. be next year. Amen. God bless you and your family.